Hello and welcome to A Flatpack History of Sweden, the podcast that takes you on a journey through Swedish history. We've arrived at the 1430s and some pretty turbulent times in Swedish history and in the Kalmar Union in general. I mean, we've said that many times before, but in this episode things are really going to get quite chaotic as a full-blown rebellion breaks out in Sweden. I wonder how many more times we're going to be able to say that? Yeah, uh, a fair few, I think, in history. My name is Chris, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Elsa, and I'm your other host. We're back in the chronological narrative after last time's special episode, all about animals in Swedish history and what they would have been getting up to in this time period, as well as a few stories of famous animals from a bit closer to the modern day. Yeah, that was a great fun episode, so thank you to Diego the dog for suggesting it and giving us a great excuse to do a little bit of a segue from our regular timeline. Yeah, but now I feel like we have done the animals of Swedish history a bit of justice, but of course they are going to be continuing to be an important part of life here. But now, before we jump in with what's to come as the man with the slightly repetitive name, Engelbrecht Engelbrechtsson, and King Erik lead Sweden into years of turmoil, it's time for our Swedish phrase of the week. This week's phrase has been suggested to us by a long-time listener and Swedish phrase of the week contributor extraordinaire, Magnus. So once again, thank you, Magnus, for all the excellent phrase suggestions. Yes, thank you very much, Magnus. And this week's offering is Betratstemma i bäcken än i ån. And that translates to English as better to stop the flow of water in the stream than in the river. Yes, stemma is one of those verbs in Swedish that has multiple different meanings. It can mean to judge or to tune something, like you tune an instrument. Or in this case, it means to stop or block the flow of water, like what you do when you build a dam. Yeah, probably the most common one, and one we say at work all the time, is like, oh, skavi stemma of detta. Yeah. Like, do we need to check this with the boss or whatever? Correct. If it's used with the preposition of, it means to, yeah, check something or control it. But anyway, means that it's better to deal with a problem than wait and risk it getting bigger. So it's better to stop the flow of water in the stream, which is a smaller body of water, than wait until it turns into a river, which is bigger, and you have to try and stop it then. Oh uh, yeah, well that makes a lot of sense both uh, in the phrase and in real life. So you could say, for example, I'm taking the car to the garage because there's a bit of rust on the door, but I'd rather deal with it now than risk it getting worse and the whole door falling off or something. It's better at stemma i bäcken än i ån. Exactly. I guess it's similar to the English expression, a stitch in time saves nine which isn't an expression I've used much myself, but I found it as an example when I was looking into this phrase. Like with many Swedish phrases, there's also a way to shorten it, so you can just say instead of just uh, saying the whole thing. Uh, not that I've said that one either myself. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's almost a more common version of the phrase, that shorter version, than saying the whole thing. 
Cool. Well, with that being said, it's time to go back to the 1430s and see if King Eric can uh, deal with his problems before they turn into a torrent. Since last time was a special episode, it's probably good to do a brief recap. We've seen recently that displeasure with King Eric has been brewing slowly in the background. Last time we talked about how the war with Holstein had taken up essentially all of the king's time and a substantial part of the state's money for a long period of time now. We also looked at how naval warfare was taking an increasingly important place in the way of waging war. If you remember, we have now actually reached a stable long-term ceasefire between Holstein, the Hansa and the Kalmar Union, and the war has, for all intents and purposes, come to an end. The backlash to the war, especially among the Swedish nobility, is now really beginning to show, though. Definitely. And now Queen Philippa, who spent a lot of time in Sweden and was someone who was on good terms with a lot of members of the Swedish council, is dead. King Eric has lost that one person he had by his side who could smooth things over between him and the Swedes, and that doesn't really bode well for the rest of the episode. In this episode, we're going to cover what happens when the displeasure with the king becomes an all-out revolt. It's time for what has gone down in Swedish history as... Engelbrecht Uproret, the Engelbrecht Uprising. Or the Engelbrecht Uproar. <laughs> exactly. Along with things like the Feast at Nyköping, which we covered in episode 49, or the establishment of the Kalmar Union that we talked about in episode 70, this is one of those things that most Swedes recognize from our middle school or junior high school history textbooks about the Middle Ages. It was a pivotal event in the course of our history, although, as we'll see, it's actually not one event, but a series of events taking place between 1432 and 1436. And the man who's given his name to this revolt, Engelbrecht Engelbrechtson, is another example of a historical character whose name is remembered by many, even if those many people don't all know exactly what he did. A, a bit like Birger Jarl and St. Birgitta. People know their names, but if you could say, give me five facts about Engelbrecht Engelbrechtson, people would say, um, he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it I think it rings faint bells of recognition in the back of most Swedes' minds, and you remember seeing a picture of him in that school history textbook when you were 12 or something, but maybe not much more than that. And uh, listeners will be forgiven if they've forgotten that we actually introduced him briefly back in the last chronological episode, because his name was first mentioned in historical records back in 1426, when he signed a letter with his nobleman's seal. But let's quickly remind ourselves of who he actually was, since he's the protagonist of this episode. Engelbrecht was a Börsman, meaning he had the privilege to trade in iron ore and other products that came from the mining district of Bergslagen in central Sweden, uh, mainly around the areas in Dalarna. On the social ranking of Swedish medieval society, he sat somewhat above the peasants on the same scale as the independent farmers, miners and local craftsmen, but below the established nobility who were wealthy enough and owned castles and other estates or sat on the royal council or ran cities. So he's sort of, yeah, he's, he's a little better than a peasant. 
Although recently, actually, Engelbrecht had married up in society when he married the daughter of a nobleman that had a lot of lands and estates. So he's clawing his way up a little bit. And yeah, so basically he's somewhat above the average person, but not so far removed from the daily life of the majority of the people that he was just some alien that came down to, to work with them. And that special position in society was in many ways what made him the ideal leader of this rebellion against the king, because as we'll see, the Engelbrecht uprising is partly a peasant or miners' revolt, where the ordinary people rise up against oppression and draconic rule, and partly an uprising by nobility and people with local power against the king and a national, or in this case, union power. In many ways, Engelbrecht was ideally situated between those two groups and could make them one joint force. So what's all the fuss about and why do Swedes read about him in their school history books? Well, it all starts back in 1431, or maybe early 1432, historians aren't really sure of the exact date, but that's when Engelbrecht writes two separate letters to King Eric, speaking on behalf of himself and the local people in his area in the county of Dalarna. Dalarna is this key part of the Bergslagen area run by the Bergs men like Engelbrecht. And the people there had elected or chosen Engelbrecht to make the king aware of the harsh and unfair local rule that they're suffering there under the bailiff of Vesteros Castle. And that's a Danish nobleman by the name of Jussa Eriksson, who they say is a really cruel man. There are stories of him making people toil until they drop dead on the spot or tied people up underneath fires. Even though that might be exaggerated, since the accounts were written later and by people who supported the rebellion, it's still understandable why the local people want the king to either tell Yusser to lay off them, basically, or replace him with someone else. Uh, you know, they've gone to the extent of writing to the king. But this didn't really help, because the king has ignored their pleas. And it's quite a pattern, really, in both Vesteros and Sweden. As you might remember, Yusser actually replaced the previous bailiff of Vesteros Castle because that man was being too cruel and ruining things locally. That was actually one of Eric's first real acts as the real king after Margareta died. Uh, he had to make this decision and said, OK, we'll get rid of this terrible bailiff. And that was when people thought, oh, maybe Eric's going to be a great king that listens to the people. Um, but unfortunately, he didn't uh, stop the tide then and it's now turned into this big river. Yeah, definitely. And who were bailiffs? Well, bailiffs held various castles and was the main form of local rule and administration in medieval Sweden. They were in charge of levying taxes, which was sometimes done quite literally by them riding around the area and collecting goods and money from people or making people bring it to the castle. But the bailiff could also, which seemed to have been the case with Jose Eriksson, become a form of local dictator, corrupting the tax system to benefit themselves and terrorizing the locals. That was something that down in Kalmar, which one of our old favorites, Mr. Abraham, uh, he did that to a great extent, becoming Sweden's largest landowner by basically bullying locals and corrupting the local system. 
Yeah, so it can get pretty bad. And since the bailiffs were the ones that collected the taxes, it's easy to see how the peasants, labouring under these heavy taxes that King Eric has brought in to finance his war with Holstein, turn their anger towards the bailiff. Moreover, the fact that Erik had put many foreign bailiffs who were loyal to him in charge in Sweden only served to further annoy local peasants and miners since they saw the bailiffs as nothing more than outsiders brought in to oppress them and take their stuff. It also didn't help that they treated the Swedish peasants and miners like Danish, German or other foreign miners, when in fact Swedes had more rights than their foreign counterparts, as seen by the letters of privilege and the way the miners ran their own businesses in the mines. This meant that the Swedes didn't understand sometimes quite literally didn't understand the way these local rulers were behaving and certainly didn't feel it represented them and their actual rights and privileges. The fact that they're actually writing letters to begin with and not rebelling outright shows you that these people still trusted the overall system and the king as a political figure. It was the local bailiffs who were the real problem. But as the days went by and having received no proper reply from the king, a group of angry peasants from Dalarna decide enough is enough and march on Vesteros. However, before any real violence can actually erupt, the Swedish council, whom the king had actually referred the whole issue to, arrive and calm down the situation. In a classic bureaucratic handling of the issue, they review the complaints and issue a report, but essentially do nothing about it. Jose Eriksson gets to keep his job. Because nothing is actually done at that point, the issue doesn't go away completely, and the peasants are still angry. Jose Eriksson and the rebelling local peasantry in Dalarna becomes a topic on the agenda of a large Nordic council meeting in Copenhagen in the summer. Jose is at the meeting personally, defending himself against the complaints laid at his door. The Swedish nobility advised the king to just put Jose on a hiatus as bailiff for the moment, whilst they head back to Bergslagen to do some further investigation and see if there's cause for Jose to be put on trial, which is what the peasants want. It won't last long, though, as the fundamental issues of the high taxes and the practice of foreign bailiffs still haven't been dealt with. So, by midsummer the following year in 1434, the threat of real violence bubbles to the surface again, and this time it's going to be big. In a way, it's like the previous year, and local uprisings in Bergslagen have been nothing but a warm-up for what's to come. Historian Dick Harrison, who's written several books on Engelbrecht and the events of the 1430s, describes 1434 as one of the most fateful years in Swedish history, a point in time when the trajectory of the ongoing development of Nordic Union and strong kings took a new and different turn that could have been decisive in its impact on history. First, they attack the castle Borgenes, which burns down on Midsummer's Day. That's a bold first step, and there's really no turning back from this point when you've burnt down a castle. As we say, these peasants now mean business. They then turn to the castle at Scherpingshus, which is owned and managed by none other than Giovanni Franco, King Eric's tour guide from when he went on his pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Oh yeah, him! We met him back in episode 77. As a 
thank you from the king, he got a couple of castles when they came back from their trip. Uh, I hadn't imagined that he would ever come back in our story. No, but here he is. I wonder if he learned Swedish or Danish. Well, I guess he probably spoke another language, probably spoke Latin, I guess, yeah. because... Uh, yeah, how would he be able to communicate with the king as this tour guide? But yeah, maybe he's learned enough Swedish and Danish to realise that these peasants are pretty angry at him. And so I think it... a pitchfork is a universal exactly. language, really. He doesn't need to know much Swedish or Danish to know that they're angry. And so he's not going to stick around to try and find out or take any responsibility for negotiating with an angry mob of peasants or risk being dragged into a fight. After all, he's Italian and a prime example or someone that King Eric has given property and power to for personal reasons. So Giovanni packs all he can carry, goes ciao and legs it before the peasants arrive and set his castle on fire. Probably a good call by Giovanni. Unfortunately, we don't know where he went. Maybe to be on the safe side, uh, he sensed that this wasn't going to be an isolated event and headed all the way back home to Italy. We don't know, but he's out of the story for now. But the violence will actually calm down once Engelbrecht and the peasants reach Vesteros. The castle here surrenders, and in the meantime, Jussa Eriksson has been formally kicked out as bailiff and replaced by a man from Pomerania called Hans von Eberstein. Engelbrecht, who apparently had a talent for making passionate speeches and rallying people around him, then calls a thing, the classic local legal meeting, at Armenshöge in Vesteros, where he urges the crowd there to join the revolt. But this time around, the scope grows, as they are joined in their struggle by representatives of another group in society, namely the high nobility. The real ones with the castles and towns and official positions, not just the basemen. Whilst they are less affected by the high taxes, they are getting increasingly annoyed with the king, and especially his practice of using foreigners loyal to him as bailiffs in Sweden, and therefore them being the ones in local power. After all, the Swedish nobility thinks that local power should be theirs, because they are, well, the Swedish nobility. Owning castles and exerting local power is literally what they've done for generations. And they're not happy with being ruled by a king that's increasingly coming across as favouring Denmark and not respecting the terms of the Union. They've also been constantly asked to contribute with men, money and blood on the battlefields of Denmark and northern Germany over the Schleswig question. The, so this means the rebellion is now taking on a very national character when it comes to Sweden. This all boils down to the fact that Engelbrecht and his uprising are joined by two key members of the Swedish nobility. One is Niels Gustafsson of the Rusvik family, member of the council and lawman of Upland, and he's at the thing Eric holds in Vesteros, and after hearing him speak, decides to join the rebellion. He is then given command of Vesteros Castle, so it's changed once again. His son Eric also joins the rebellion and immediately heads north with a force up to Norland, over to Orland and Finland, where his father had local control of Korsholm County to gather support for the rebellion there. And he's successful in doing it, so the rebellion is spread to Finland too. The important castles Kastaholm and Faxaholm fall to the rebels within no time too. 
Eric will become one of the main figures in this rebellion, and he's often referred to in history by both his first and last name, which can be fun to say in both English and Swedish, and it's Eric Puke, or Eric Puke. <laughs> yeah, it's pronounced Puke, Eric Puke, but yeah, it's spelled like the English word for vomit, puke. To be precise, he's actually called Eric Nilsson Puke since his dad's first name was Nils, but we'll just call him Erik Puke. Yeah, I think I'll call him Puke. Anyway, it's not just members of the nobility that are joining Engelbrecht's rebellion, so are members of the clergy. It's unknown if Engelbrecht had had any contact with representatives of the Swedish church before taking up arms, but considering how quickly they join in, it's possible that there had been discussions beforehand. The Swedish church has their own reasons to be angry with King Erik, though. We've seen how the archbishop's seat in Sweden recently became vacant, and against the wishes of the church, Erik pushes his own man onto the position, ignoring that the church had already made a choice for a new archbishop, and even sent that suggestion off to the pope who had to approve it, and he did. But just like with exerting power through his own local bailiffs, Erik is keen on maintaining power over the church by having his preferred person in charge as archbishop. But now that Engelbrecht had opened the floodgates of political discontent, the church jumped on that bandwagon. When news spread that Engelbrecht is heading to Uppsala, the Erik-appointed archbishop sees the way the wind is blowing and takes off running. But that's not before he has time to steal some of the cathedral's most valuable relics, including the thumb of the king's Saint Erik the Holy back in the 1100s. Wow, I'm now imagining him just simply putting the thumb in his pocket and then running away. I guess he would argue that he was protecting it from the rebellion, so maybe it wasn't completely evil. Either way, this meant that the person the Swedish church had wanted all along, and the one that the Pope had actually approved, a man called Iulof, could assume the position as archbishop. And once Engelbrecht arrived in Uppsala, the church was quick to lend him and his rebellion both spiritual and literal support. I'm sure, yeah, thoughts and prayers were given uh, on his behalf. Thoughts and prayers, but then also the church at this time has yeah, like know, their own army. So it's like, thoughts and prayers and weapons. Yeah, and gold. <laughs> All this is sort of happening at the same time in the summer and early autumn of 1434. So it's happening very quickly. The people in Sermland, so further south than the areas we've talked about so far, are also becoming aware of the rebellion and rise up on their own accord. They don't even have to wait for Engelbrecht to come and give a fancy speech, and they overthrow the German bailiff of Gripsholm Castle, who flees up to Stockholm. Although everything seems to be going Engelbrecht and the rebellion's way, after all they've faced no real resistance so far, one major stronghold remains uh, that they haven't touched yet, and that's Stockholm. Stockholm is tricky for two reasons. As we've seen previously, because the city's geographical location on islands and peninsulas where the river meets the sea, it's hard to take by force, and to properly lay siege to it, you have to block off both land and sea access, which is hard to do. 
Stockholm also has a large German population, being the major Baltic trading hub that it is, and so it's less likely that large parts of the population will be sympathetic with the rebellion's cause. However, this time Lady Luck really shines on Engelbrecht, because when he arrives to Stockholm and encamps on Norbrul, just north of the city, a representative of the city council called Kröpelin approaches him with a ceasefire agreement, but it's just valid for the city. Kröpelin is, in a way, a perfect representative of the city, being of German descent but having a seat on the Swedish council that he's had for quite a while. Both sides seem to appreciate the benefit of not having to fight over Stockholm, and the agreement is signed on the 1st of August and will last until November. This means Engelbrecht is free to head first to Örebro, and then south to Nyköping and into Östergötland. Everywhere he goes, he offers the same deal with the local bailiffs. They will hand over their castle if they aren't assisted by the king within six weeks, which they aren't, and thus rebels get the castle. Yeah, he's basically saying, well, if you think your king is going to help you, let's wait for six weeks, but if he's not here, then you need to give it up. And they pretty much always accept this. Although not all of them, though. In Östergötland, the German bailiff at Ringstadsholm refuses Engelbrecht's offer, and that annoys Engelbrecht, who supposedly shouts in response, before the week is over, I'll drag you out by your hair. And he then proceeds to order his forces to build a pontoon bridge so they can cross the moat that surrounds the castle. And then they erect a five-story high wooden siege tower to climb over the castle walls. And when the bailiff sees this tower being constructed, he suddenly changes his mind and agrees to a ceasefire. Probably a wise choice. This is really interesting, as we are seeing complicated siege works being built and employed in these sieges. So it shows you that the army had commanders who knew what they were doing. It isn't just a bunch of groundskeeper willies with torches and pitchforks. During the late summer and autumn, more areas in southern Sweden joined the rebellion. There seems to be nothing stopping it, really. There is also a large meeting held in Vodstena, which is sometimes described as a meeting of the Swedish council, but it isn't formally, although many council members are present. There's also a bit of confusion about when the meeting is held. Some sources say 16th of August, others the 12th of September, so we'll just say it's in August-September time, it, it doesn't matter too much. What matters is that this is the meeting when the majority of the Swedish nobility, especially from the southern counties of Småland, Västergötland, Östergötland and parts of Sörmanland, are going to decide if they will join Engelbrecht's rebellion or not. They seem to see strong reasons for doing this, but they also might fear what Engelbrecht will do if they don't go along with it. Yeah, not surprisingly, that's when Engelbrecht turns up unannounced with his troops and gives several inflamed speeches and even grabs one hesitant nobleman by the throat when he expresses doubts about the rebellion. It's quite Darth Vader-like. And it's hard to know what actually happened, if the nobleman jumped or if they were pushed, so to say. But after the meeting in Vardstena, it's clear that Engelbrecht and his revolt has more or less the entire Swedish nobility behind it now. Those at the meeting sign a statement saying they no longer recognise Eric as king. 
They've probably been helped by the fact that Engelbrecht makes sure that the castles that are taken from the foreign bailiffs in the rebellion are given to Swedish noblemen loyal to him. So that's some consolation if you've been grabbed by the throat, at least you get a castle. It's like that Eddie Izzard sketch, cake or death. So it's a uh, castle or death. It's like, hmm, <laughs> hard choice. I'll take the castle, please. True. As 1434 draws to a close, we see that the odds are very much in Engelbrecht's favour. The uprising this year has hit royal power in Sweden hard. The crown has lost control of several castles and with that the means to execute power locally. Still, it's not all lost. Some of the most important strongholds in the country, places that you'll recognize because we often mention them, like Axvall, Stegeholm, Kalmar, Viboy over in eastern Finland, they remain in local control. Kalmar, for example, survives a siege. Yeah, so some people are still willing to fight for Eric, and it's not over yet. But to paraphrase someone who talked about a very different fight much later in history, this isn't the end, it's not even the beginning of the end, but it might be the end of the beginning. Nonetheless, King Eric is not oblivious to the uprising in Sweden, definitely not. During the late summer and autumn, he gathers a fleet and sets sail from his base in Denmark to go to Stockholm and deal with the Swedish council and hopefully stop the rebellion. On its way to Stockholm, they conduct a few small raids on villages on the Swedish east coast, but nothing major. However, autumn isn't the best time to travel at sea, and the king's fleet, which likely wasn't very big to begin with, faces several storms and mishaps. One ship sinks outside Bornholm, taking 60 men with it, and once the fleet reaches the sound between Erland and Kalmar, the flagship of the fleet sinks. So, yeah, not very good. The king reaches Stockholm on the 1st of November, but Engelbrecht and the rebel forces have not been unaware of his approach, and Engelbrecht has basically encircled the city with forces encamped to the north, west, and south. The city itself, as we've already said, notoriously difficult to take by force, and both sides face a challenge here. Engelbrecht would have to attack from land, where the city is protected by its walls, and whilst Erik can attack from the sea, his force is significantly reduced, and they don't want to risk having to face off to the rebel forces on open ground. So there's a stalemate, more or less immediately, and there's also that ceasefire in place with representatives of the town council, which would make any hostile action in the town costly for whichever side started it. It seems like the two sides realize pretty quickly that there's nothing to gain from engaging each other, and instead they reach a ceasefire agreement before any fighting ever takes place. The agreement is set to last for one year, and says that within that year, a meeting with four councillors from each of the councils in the Union should take place to negotiate a more long-term agreement. So in the end, nothing's really resolved, but as 1434 draws to a close, the actual fighting dies down a bit, even though the political revolt by the Swedes against the king continues. In January 1435, there's a big meeting of Swedish peasants, noblemen, and church representatives in Arbelga in Westmanland, right in the middle of this mining area of Bergslagen, which has been the heartland of the revolt since the start. And this meeting is the place where the Swedes are going to unite the various groups within the revolt, selecting leaders and plot a common course forward. It sounds like a startup meeting at work, really. 
Yeah, well, it is in a way. Project making lower taxes, get rid of foreign bailiffs, and generally stick to what is promised in his royal oath meeting. Yeah, nice and snappy. Actually, the meeting in Arborga has sometimes been called Sweden's first parliament and has been portrayed as such in some history books, but most historians today dispute that. Of course, it largely depends on how you define the term parliament, but most would probably define it as some sort of elected legislative assembly, which the meeting in Arborga was not. No, it was neither legislative nor elected. But what it was, was a national meeting where a national Swedish plan was set out that stipulated the wishes and desires of Sweden as a whole, with representatives from several parts of society. And that was unusual in Sweden at the time, because this is a period when the independence of the various counties was still really strong. We often talk about the landskap or the counties, like Östergötland or Västmanland. The counties had their own laws, and the whole legal system was more federal, and power was often executed on a regional level, as we see with these bailiffs collecting taxes and so on. So in that sense, the meeting in Abelga is, if not the first time it happens, then at least unusual in its kind in medieval Sweden. And I guess it's a perfect example of the old phrase, nothing unites like a common enemy, because their various grievances and problems with King Eric have definitely managed to unite the otherwise quite different sections of Swedish society. For sure, but we'll see how it goes with that unity as this revolt drags on. But yes, for now, there is unity, and Engelbrecht is very much the guy that everyone rallies around with his passionate speeches and plans for action against the king. At Arbulga, it's decided that the Swedish council will be expanded with 20 new members, most of them being young or lower-ranking members of the nobility, like Engelbrecht and Puke. It was supposed to be only the king who appointed people to the Swedish council, so this is another attack on his authority. No peasants or miners are part of this new council, apart from Engelbrecht, depending on how you count him, so you can see how the nature of this rebellion is slowly turning away from the peasant beginning and becoming a nobility-led plot. They also appoint people to a number of positions of power in Sweden that King Eric has either purposefully kept vacant or filled with his own people. They also appoint regional commanders of the areas where Eric still controls castles, a bit like appointing an opposition leader in a political sense. For example, a nobleman by the name of Christian Nilsson Vasa is appointed Drotz. Another nobleman, called Karl Knudsson Bunde, is appointed Mask, which, of course, was the main military commander in medieval Scandinavia. We've mentioned Karl Knudsson Bunde briefly before, because he was one of the noblemen who were knighted at Erik and Philippa's wedding. He's still quite young, and not really seen as a major threat, but he will become an incredibly powerful political figure as this revolt continues. Finally, Engelbrecht Engelbrechtsson is also given a military position, that of Rikshövitsman, captain of the realm, which puts him in charge of the Swedish troops fighting the king, sort of a supreme commander of the Swedish armed forces. Sounds like a pretty 
intense title, Supreme Commander, but that is actually the title of the head of the Swedish Armed Forces today, the official English name for it at least. Yeah, in Swedish it's Överbefälhabara, or Erbe for short, but yeah, people call him the Supreme Commander, so it's uh, it's one of those titles you actually see in Sweden, which sounds a bit odd in the English version of the name, but yeah, that's what he's called. And King Eric is still resisting any attempts by the Swedish rebel forces to make him change his ways, and he still has those castles and foreign bailiffs supporting him, so he's not totally out of the game yet. However, after the meeting in Arburga in February 1435, representatives of the Swedish uprising head to Sigtuna to meet with Hans Korplin, the commander of Stockholm, who's close to the king, and they try to convince him to cease sense. First of all, they agree that the ceasefire in place in Stockholm should continue, but also that Kröpling should go to the king, along with a representative of the Teutonic Knights, and suggest terms for negotiation. Kröpling thinks that the king will be willing to negotiate if the rebels agree that Eric can stay on as king, just that he promises to change his ways of ruling and instead rule according to the terms of the landslog. The rebels agree to this, which some historians have seen as an indication that they didn't want to overthrow the system as such, or even really overthrow the king, they just wanted things within the system, like taxation and the foreign bailiffs, to change. This wasn't turning out to be the full-blown peasant rebellion it had perhaps looked like in the beginning. After all, the nobility are really starting to take control of it by now. It takes a while for Kröpling to negotiate with his unwilling king, but finally he has an offer to take with him back to the Swedes. They meet in Halmstad on the west coast, and from there they issue a proclamation on the 3rd of May, saying that they will accept Eric as king, and that plans are being outlined for what this rule should look like. These plans basically put certain limits in place for the king, that he must always rule according to the law, that foreigners should not be put in position of local power, and that taxes will be lowered in Sweden and agreed with the nobility. Sounds good. Sounds like the Swedes get what they want, and Erik gets to remain king. True, but this would also spell the end of strong royal power and the way that Eric has been ruling the Kalmar Union as one big blob, the way that Margareta and Eric have wanted to since the beginning. They haven't wanted the individual kingdoms to have their own power and strong councils. You're right. In Halmstad, they also decide to hold a proper meeting with the king in person in Stockholm later in the summer, so things might change then. This will be the big showdown where they actually meet in person and decide on these things. But we'll have to wait and see what happens then, as we should probably start rounding off this episode now. We've seen a lot happen in a short period of time. Engelbrecht has started a full-blown rebellion, one which started off with peasants and miners rising up against heavy-handed foreign control of Swedish regions and castles, imposing heavy taxes on the local people. This rebellion grew and grew until it captured castles and brought the nobility and church on side. Eric has now started to negotiate, but to be fair, do people really trust him? He's always used negotiation as a way of stalling for time in the war with Holstein, so we'll have to see what happens next. Will this final meeting in Halmstad and their ideas that they put forward then settle things for good when they meet in Stockholm, or will the rebellion continue to push Eric into more meaningful change? Exactly. 
We'll have to wait and see. But with that all said, all that remains is to say thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this jam-packed episode of Revolts and Uprisings. Like we said, we will continue the story in two weeks' time and see what Engelbrecht and his rebellion gets up to. And once again, thank you for listening and giving your feedback about the dog episode and the animal episode. That was so much fun, and uh, we hope you enjoyed that too. In the meantime, don't forget to check out our website, aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com. Check out all the sources and look at the episode pictures. Uh, the previous one about the hands are finally snapped was a really good one with the fire arrows you know, doing practice outside by the barn. So there's lots of funny scenes on those episode pictures if you want to check those out and if you want to get in touch you can do so via email flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com or find us on facebook or twitter where we post lots of pictures of our travels around sweden and stockholm chris went to Åland recently on the ferry and took some good photos of stockholm from the sea and I took loads of photos of cranes, a type of big stork-like bird down in Skåne. So there's something for everyone on the Twitter and Facebook accounts. <laughs> That's really true. And you can also leave us a review wherever you listen to us on. Uh, that really helps and uh, warms our hearts. But until next time, it's just time to say hey do. Take care. Bye-bye. Historian Dick Harrison, who's written a lot of books about history. <laughs> of course, he has. he's a historian. Um...